And now open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 2, and verses 12 through 18, as we continue in our series through the book of Revelation. And please remain standing as I read God's word. This is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Please give it your full attention. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp, two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not... I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. You may be seated. We've come to the third message to the seven churches of Asia Minor, which is to the church at Pergamum. And Christ identifies himself to this church as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Once again, the self-identification of Christ comes from that original revelation of Christ in chapter 1 that John was able to receive. In verse 16 of chapter 1, John records that revelation and what he saw, saying, From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Now, the sword is the symbol of judgment. And it comes from Christ's mouth. And so we recognize that the two-edged sword is Christ's word of judgment. Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, that when the man of lawlessness appears, Jesus will kill him by the breath of his mouth. In other words, he will speak a word of judgment against him and bring him to nothing. Christ needs no sword to kill. The Son, who is the eternal Word of God, brought about all of creation by His Word. So also can He bring things to nothing by the power of His Word. Now it is significant 
that Christ identifies himself in this way to the church at Pergamum because they dwelled where Satan set up his throne. You see, Pergamum eventually became the capital of the Roman Empire in the east. The city of Rome was, of course, the official capital of the Roman Empire. But in Asia Minor, Pergamum was the capital in the east. Now, we have to be careful as we move throughout the book of Revelation not to identify only the Roman Empire as the beast of Revelation. But the beast does employ earthly political powers, such as Rome, to persecute God's people. And in Revelation chapter 13, verse 2, we read that Satan gives the beast his throne and great authority. And so it makes sense that Christ would call Pergamum, the eastern capital city of the Roman Empire, the place where Satan had set up his throne. And it also makes sense for him to say this because Pergamum was the center, was a major center for pagan cults. For example, it was the first place in Asia Minor that built a temple to the Roman Emperor Augustus and to the goddess Roma. In addition to that, Another temple was built in Pergamum to Asclepios, the patron god of healing, who was symbolized by a serpent. Maybe you've wondered at some point where the medical symbol of a snake on a stick comes from. Well, that was understood to be the rod of Asclepios, the god of healing, who was worshipped in the form of a snake. And in Revelation chapter 12, John sees a vision of what? The ancient serpent, which is the devil. And so again, it makes sense that Pergamum was described as the place where Satan, the ancient serpent, had set up his throne. Now significant, as I mentioned earlier, that Christ identifies himself to the church in Pergamum as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. Because in a place where Satan has set up his throne through political powers, Christians need to remember that though the governments of this world have been divinely granted the power of the sword, Christ's judgment and Christ's power exceed that of any earthly authority or any earthly government. Therefore, if Christians are called to worship at the temples or to worship the emperor, they must remain faithful to Christ. Now, Christ commends the church at Pergamum because they did not deny their faith in him. He says even in the days of Antipas, they did not deny their faith in Christ. Now, according to church history, Antipas was a disciple of the Apostle John and was ordained as the bishop of Pergamum and was martyred for his faith. Clearly, he was indeed martyred for Christ says so here in the passage that he was killed as a martyr for his faith. 
According to most scholars, he was martyred somewhere around the year 92 A.D., though a few scholars who date the book earlier than that obviously have him being martyred much earlier, around 68 A.D., under the reign of Nero. Regardless of when he was martyred, it was on account of his martyrdom that Christ calls him his faithful witness. Now John, the Apostle John, calls Christ himself the faithful witness in chapter 1, verse 5. Because Christ is the preeminent witness. The preeminent faithful witness who died for the cause of the gospel. And Antipas, by remaining faithful unto death, became a reflection of the Lord. And the whole church needs to follow Antipas's example, even as he followed the example of Christ. In the midst of trials, persecutions, and temptations, the church at Pergamum, as well as us today, need to remain faithful to Christ by holding fast to His name. And thus far, the church at Pergamum had done so, and for this, Christ commends them. However, the church... Pergamum was not without its need for rebuke. Christ states that he has some things against them and says specifically, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of of the Nicolaitans. Now, in the last passage, as well as in this passage, I think we have perfect examples of how Revelation uses symbols to communicate its message. In the last passage, you will remember that Christ tells Smyrna that they were going to be tempted for ten days. Well, he wasn't telling them that they would only find tribulation and testing for a literal ten days. He uses that number, symbolically, to allude back to Daniel chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, where Daniel and his friends were tested for ten days to see if they would be as healthy as the youths who ate from the king's table. Well, we find the same type of symbolism being employed in this passage as well. We really see it all throughout the book. And the Lord spells it out for us here. He says that there are some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And to point this out, to illustrate this, he uses an Old Testament situation that was analogous to what church at Pergamum was presently experiencing. He mentions that some there hold to the teaching of Balaam. Well, as we read earlier in the service, Balaam was a prophet mentioned in the book of Numbers when Israel was wandering 
through the wilderness. And at that time, Balak, the king of Moab, wanted to pay Balaam to curse the Israelites. We didn't go on and read the whole account, but each time that he tried, the Lord prevented Balaam from doing so and caused him to bless Israel instead. Well, in order to get the money that Balak offered to pay him, he took then a subtler approach. He advised Balak to send Moabite women to seduce the Israelite men into sexual immorality and idolatry. Now, Christ uses this as a symbol. He uses it as the symbolism of what was going on, or to be symbolism, to show what was going on at the church in Pergamum. You see, Balaam himself didn't have teachings that people walked around and said, we hold to the teachings of Balaam. This is an illustration that Christ is using. The Lord simply used this as an analogy because there was a group known as the Nicolaitans who by their teachings were leading members of the church into sexual immorality and to eating food sacrificed to idols in a similar way to how Balaam had the Israelites seduced. So this church had done well as they faced the beast in Pergamum, but they were dropping the ball, so to speak, in their struggles with what Revelation calls the false prophet. Now, the Lord said only some there in Pergamum held to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, but the repentance is addressed to the whole church. That's interesting, isn't it? Think about it. Jesus said, I have a few things against you, you, the whole church, you. You have some there who hold this teaching. He had something against the whole church because a few, because some held to this teaching. And so there are Two issues really here that's being addressed. One is that some hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. That's on the one hand. But on the other hand, the rest of the church had not held the Nicolaitans accountable for their beliefs and practices. And perhaps especially the elders there at Pergamum. And so when Christ calls them to repentance, not only did those who were delinquent in their faith and practice need to repent, but the rest of the church needed to repent for not holding them accountable, even by church discipline, if necessary. If the church didn't hold them accountable... The Lord says that he was going to come and discipline them himself. The Lord says he will come and wage war against them by the sword of his mouth. He's not referring here to the final judgment at the second coming. Christ, 
who walks among the lampstand churches threatens to come and judge them soon if they do not repent. And so this is what the Lord had against the church. He commended them, but then also called them to repentance. But in closing the message to Pergamum, as usual, the Lord calls all the churches to be spiritually discerning. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers is not merely the one who overcomes persecution where Satan's throne is, but also the one who doesn't fall prey to the seductions that come from false teaching. But to the one who overcomes, to the one who conquers, Jesus promises to give some of the hidden manna and a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, what is Jesus referring to here? Well, with the manna, Jesus is again using symbolism from the Old Testament. The symbolism here also comes from the time when Israel was wandering in the wilderness. We've talked about how the exodus is a major theme Throughout the book of Revelation, we see it time and time again. We see it even here. They're having left Egypt, but wandering through the wilderness. The Lord continues to use these time periods in redemptive history as symbols for what is going on presently in the church. And you see, at that time in Israel's history, God had provided manna or bread from heaven to nourish Israel during their journey. You should remember, though, that Jesus in John chapter 6 said, I am the bread of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, referring to himself, he will live forever. In other words, the manna or the bread in the Old Testament was a type and shadow of the coming Christ. Type and shadow of the Messiah. Not that Christ really wanted anyone to eat his own flesh. Sadly, some confused him for saying that who heard him. But symbolically, what Jesus was saying is that true spiritual provision comes from him. He nourishes us with eternal life if we have faith in him. But we might ask one additional question of the manna. Why does he call it hidden manna? Why is the manna hidden? Well, some of the manna that Israel received in their wandering of the wilderness, they were commanded to place in a golden jar, which was then placed in the ark of the testimony, which in turn was placed in the most holy place of the tabernacle. And this too, beloved, is a type and shadow of Christ, who has now risen into the most holy place 
of the heavenly tabernacle. He is that manna, and he now bodily is in the heavenly tabernacle, hidden from our eyes. But to the one who conquers, this bread will no longer be hidden. In other words, Christ himself will be given to that person to have for an everlasting fellowship in heaven. This mention of the manna is probably also a reference then to the marriage supper of the Lord, which we'll speak more about in just a moment. And the white stone is associated with multiple things. For one, a black stone was at times associated with casting a vote of guilt against someone, while a white stone was used for a vote of acquittal, which is precisely what believers have in Christ. An acquittal before God the Father because our sins have been forgiven through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christ's blood washes the sinner white as snow, which is another association with the white stone. It indicates the cleanness of the person. But this is only true of those who have true faith. And that faith will be tested, beloved, by persecution. It will be tested by false doctrine. It will be tested by temptation in many ways. And the one who has true faith conquers. He overcomes and perseveres to the end and thus is granted the white stone. Now the white stone is really most associated with a pass of admission into a special occasion. In the ancient world... Special stones were often given to people as their admission ticket, so to speak, into an event. And the stone here is specifically the admission ticket to the wedding banquet at the eternal feast in heaven. Where the one invited will feast upon that hidden manna, namely upon Christ himself. The name written on that stone is the name of Christ. There are several things that help us to make this conclusion. First, in Revelation 19.12, there is a name written upon Christ, which no one knows except Christ, we are told. But in Revelation chapter 22, verse 4, that name is then written on the forehead of Christ's servants. I'll mention more on this in the next chapter in the message to Philadelphia because it speaks there of that name again. But you see, Christ's new name is known only by him and by those upon whom he writes his new name. He places his name upon us. And that name is not any real new specific name, but it's showing the newness of the age, of the accomplishment of redemption. It is new in what has been accomplished over against that which was merely promised 
beforehand. And so Christ's people receive that name, and that name is written upon the stone, which admits us into the heavenly banquet, the wedding supper of the Lamb. Now, as we have ears to hear what Christ says to us this morning, we need to recognize, beloved, the dangers of false doctrine in the church. We may think that a, that a persecuting government is very dangerous to the church, and it can bring harm upon the church to some extent. But Satan also uses false doctrine from within the church to try and bring her to ruin. He desires for her to take part in the debaucheries of the harlot Babylon. That's the city in Revelation. The city of the beast, the city of the serpent. And he wants you to take part in her rather than to participate in the righteous actions of the new Jerusalem. And so the deception of false doctrine is just as dangerous, if not more dangerous to the church than even persecution. And so Satan certainly uses deception and seduction to lure people away from the church. And that's why Satan employs not only the beast who persecutes the church, but also the false prophet who deceives and the harlot Babylon, who seduces. Now, take notice that the teachings of the Nicolaitans, their false doctrine, led some in Pergamum into sexual immorality and idolatry. Oftentimes, because of the trade guilds, church members were tempted to participate in feasts that celebrated patron gods. Not only by dedicating the meat to those gods and sacrifice, but sometimes even through participation in sexual immorality. In those feasts. Now, we don't really know much about the Nicolaitans. They claim that they came from Nicholas of Antioch, who was one of the original deacons chosen in Acts chapter 6. It's hard to know if that's true. Maybe they merely claimed that. But perhaps it may have been true. It's also hard to know exactly what their false teachings were that led people into sexual immorality and idolatry. But it probably related to the trade guilds that were just mentioned. They probably taught that Christians didn't have to be so separate from the world such that they had to exclude themselves from these pagan festivals Tied to the trade guilds. Tied to the way they made their money. After all, that would mean not being able to conduct business. And even more, it meant possibly being persecuted and potentially facing trial for not accepting the emperor as lord. And so they were probably, that is the Nicolaitans, were probably syncretists who said it was fine to participate in these events also to claim Christ as Lord and Savior. And I think we all find ourselves in certain temptations like this at times. 
it can come in a million different ways. We talked about one, for example, in Sunday school this morning. You know, we could be tempted to marry someone outside of the faith. There's commands in Scripture for us to marry in the Lord. And we could choose to betray that and to not be a faithful witness to Christ. Again, this could come in lots of different ways. I'm sure to lesser or greater degrees, we've all faced it at many times in our lives. And we can begin to justify the actions we choose in our own theologies in one way or another. Now, on the flip side, our deviant theologies can lead us into immoral practices. So it works both ways. Those of you who've come to our study on the history of American Presbyterianism know what I'm talking about. The church's bad practices led them at times to bad doctrine. But also their bad doctrine at times led them into bad practices. And so we must be careful of both. We don't want situational theology where our situation dictates our theology. But on the other hand, we don't want faulty doctrine to then determine how we act in certain situations. We don't want it, in other words, to lead us into immoral practices. And it was likely the former, I think, that caused the issues in Pergamum. Their situation is dealing with the social pressures of commerce and politics, which forced individuals to participate in festivals celebrating pagan deities. Likely, that led them to a false doctrine, which taught that participation in such events is okay, so long as you didn't believe in the false gods that you were there to celebrate. The problem was that this false doctrine wound up leading many of them into sexual immorality and even so far as into idolatry itself. Thus nullifying their witness for Christ in Pergamum. And these are things, beloved, that we have to hold one another accountable to and even through church discipline, if necessary. Now, the only way we can hold one another accountable is through the Word of God. We must know God's Word and the doctrines that it teaches. Not to puff ourselves up in how much we know, but in order to be more faithful in our witness of Christ to the world. Christ says he has a two-edged sword which comes from his mouth. And the sword is the word of his judgment. He threatened to go to Pergamum and bring a judgment of curse against them if they did not repent. This is evident that there really are covenant curses in the new covenant. Threatened against the church. But beloved, those who turn to God's word, that is, who turn to the Holy Scriptures and who grow in the knowledge of it, can avoid such judgments by the grace of God. 
It too is a double-edged sword. As Hebrews 4 says, it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. In other words, the word reveals to us all that is in our hearts. It lays it bare. All the sinful habits, all the evil and false principles that move the heart. All the vileness that remains are exposed through the word of God. And removed are cut out by the sword through the power of the Spirit of God. If we allow the Word of God to judge us now, we will not be hardened by the deceitfulness of false doctrines and immoral practices. And we will be all the more prepared to be faithful witnesses of Christ in this dark world as we await the wedding feast of the Lamb we will be eternally nourished by the bread of heaven. To him be all praise and glory now and forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. Our most gracious God, we are thankful for Christ, our Savior, the preeminent faithful witness, who in the midst of Temptations and seductions and persecutions always looked to you, O Father, and trusted in you to deliver him even from the state of death. And so we pray, O God, that we too would be like our Savior. Help us to be conformed to his image, that in everything, in every situation, all the way up to our deaths, we would be ready to be faithful witnesses of you. Lord, where we need to repent, may your word and spirit convict us and cause us to turn and to walk the path you have laid for us in faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.